Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. After having been imprisoned on false allegations, Joseph is still keeping his strict fidelity to the God of his ancestors. As Joseph is unceasingly faithful to the statutes of God, God keeps Joseph as a blessing to not only himself, but to the Egyptians around him. This is the model of the scriptural servant of God. Joseph is not attempting to fight his situation, nor his captors, but is simply bestowing the same mercy shown to him by God to those he comes in contact with. Here in chapter 40, we will hear a story which I am convinced became the model for the story of the two thieves at Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of Luke. Let's hear the story. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So on the outset, we are told that the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh have committed an offense against Pharaoh and were thrown in the prison with Joseph. This is important as Joseph is jailed along to individuals who are guilty while Joseph himself is innocent. There's a profound point being made here that worldly justice and divine justice may at times overlap, but in these crucial circumstances, they are far away from each other. It was Joseph's fidelity to God's laws which led him to be jailed as a transgressor in the eyes of the Egyptian law. But regardless, he still ends up in jail. I've alluded in the past to Joseph's story being paralleled with Isaiah's account of the suffering servant. Now, Christians oftentimes tend to be tunnel-visioned with the suffering servant and usually view these poems as solely referring to Christ. And while it's undeniably true that the New Testament authors used the servant poems as models for Jesus' narrative, 
Those aforementioned poems are presented in Isaiah's account not so much as a prefiguring of a specific individual, but more of a hypothetical template for a truly scriptural slave of God, and how such an individual would be mistreated and persecuted by a world so inherently opposed towards God's unworldly focus towards the weak and the outsider. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, we read that the suffering servant will be numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he is considered a criminal by the world governments due to his fidelity to the scriptural teachings. This is true for Joseph, and it is true for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Joseph is imprisoned with two criminals in the same way that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. This parallel will only become more apparent as we continue on in the story. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The dream of the cupbearer is very similar to Jesus' parable of himself as the true vine in John 15. The similarities are also present with the uh, imagery of the pit and the being raised in three days, and also the request that the cupbearer remembers Joseph when he is reconciled to Pharaoh. The point in this comparison is mainly to showcase just how connected the Old and New Testaments are and how much the New Testament borrows these stories and reworks them in its overall narrative. The man that actually supplies Jesus' tomb in the Synoptic Gospels is named Joseph of Arimathea. The inclusion of Joseph here, I feel, is no coincidence. When we look at this as just a historical document, as some Christians feel the need to do, we would just see this as something incidental or something negligible, just uh, abstract detail. His name just happened to be Joseph. But if we look at this as a cohesive piece of literature, all of a sudden this takes on an interesting dimension. With all of the parallels laid out so far, it only makes sense to consistently allude back to the story of Genesis from the eyes of the New Testament authors. Another interesting thing to point out about this whole dream business is the interpretive nature of it. It's like a riddle. It reminds me of a mashal, right? It's absolutely indicative of the mashalic nature of the biblical story in that it is partly a riddle on purpose, right? Jesus says in in the Gospels that I teach in parables so that they are not understood, right? It's meant to be something that you have to investigate. You have to have a little bit of awareness by the grace of God to understand what these parables represent, right? It echoes the teaching 
of Psalm 78 and also Ezekiel 20 verse 49, where Ezekiel is criticized by his detractors because he is called a parabler of parables. Basically, they're saying he's speaking nonsense. Accordingly, in the book of Sirach, the author goes on a long diatribe in chapter 39 about the wisdom of a man studying so rigorously that he begins to uncover the hidden meanings of these parables throughout the scriptural corpus. Just read it for yourself. So again, I'm not taking asides just to take asides. There is a point in all of this, and that is to stress constantly that scripture is a cohesive whole, and these dreams are echoing the mashalic nature of scripture itself. And it seems distinctly Semitic. I mean, you can just look at the ending of the Bible. The book of Revelation is itself a massive riddle. People for 2,000 years have been attempting to explain it, and I think that anybody that thinks that they have it 100% figured out, like they know what every single thing in that book represents to a T, I think they're deluding themselves. Because it's supposed to be highly, highly, highly symbolic on purpose, and it's pretty much impossible to understand if you don't have the totality of Scripture in your mind. I mean, you have to understand the, the symbolism of Ezekiel and the symbolism of Daniel uh, to even come close. And what's funny is that the, uh, the Muslims have this too. With, uh, in, in, in the Quran, uh, Christians might be unaware, but if you study the Quran a little bit, um, there exists before certain chapters just unintelligible letters. They're called the huruf al-makatsa'at in Arabic. And uh, people have argued since the founding of Islam, you know, what the heck these, <laughs> these letters mean? And, you know, the traditionalist Muslim would say, you know, it's just, it's something that only God can know. But people have, people have, you know, attempted to study it. But I don't know, I, I, think, I think that this is just a cultural thing. You know, certain things are guarded to the point where it's forcing the hearer to do a little bit of work on their own. And that work can really only come, the fruits of that work can only come by the grace of God. And we're seeing that with Joseph. He is somebody who is unwavering in his obedience to the scriptural God. And therefore, he has, by the grace of God, sound interpretation to these riddles. Yeah, and in the spirit of that, Blaze, I think we should compare stories in Genesis between Joseph's stories and his father, specifically the way each of them interact with dreams or visions. Both characters receive visions from God, and both have the power to quote-unquote use those visions, if you will. Jacob quite often took his own dreams he received and twisted them or added things to them which were clearly not present in the dream itself, all for the sake of his own benefit, of course. Joseph also uses the dreams for his own benefit, but the way in which he does so is permissible because he is not twisting the dream or adding things to it by his own cleverness. And here, he's not even interpreting his own dreams. Way back at the beginning of Joseph's story, he did have dreams of his own, but he was unable to interpret them, and in his innocence and purity of heart, entrusted his family to interpret the dreams for him, but of course they couldn't help but interpret it in such a way that was not suitable to their prerogatives, so they despised Joseph. 
When Joseph interprets the dreams of these Egyptians, however, he is honest and doesn't let his own interests cloud his interpreting. And most importantly, he attributes the interpretations to God. Jacob, on the other hand, might have said the opposite, that God gives the dream, but man interprets, right? Because Jacob was a theologian, right? Like any good theologian uh, in our modern time, or in church history for that matter, Scripture is only valid through the lens and interpretation of human beings. The stories, the morals, the values of Scripture have to be interpreted by me and my forefathers in order for it to be disseminated to people, right? I'm the middleman. It's all about me, me, me. But Joseph knows better. Joseph is a true son of Scripture who hears Scripture, and more importantly, hears what God expects him to do with himself. He says that it is God who interprets. So he understands, and that's how we should understand Scripture. God gives us Scripture. We don't interpret Scripture. God interprets Scripture through us, with Scripture. And that's not your modern Christian historical apologist, the Bible justifies the Bible, the Bible explains the Bible, circular reasoning nonsense. No. So what does any of that mean? Well, we have to keep going through Scripture slowly as we're doing, trying to hear it how it presents itself in order to understand. And that's the key, to be submissive, to submit to Scripture and hear it the same way Joseph is submissive. He is a sheep. He realizes that interpretations belong to God, which is why he is able to interpret in the first place. Not because he has powers or special knowledge, but because he knows God by his obedience to God. Therefore, Joseph can discern these things. He then asks in humility for the man to simply remember him when he's returned to his station of power after interpreting the dream because Joseph's done nothing uh, deserving of, of prison. And that's it. It's not a crime for Joseph to desire freedom from prison. Anybody would. I think we often view the world, and by extension scripture, and its characters through very polar lenses, specifically religious lenses. We all have an idea about how to be religious. So here, either Joseph should seek complete and ultimate asceticism, remaining in prison, or he should take complete personal advantage of his place with God, like Jacob did, you know? It's, for a modern example, such as those who work for the church. Either they should work for free and be poor and have no money, or they should pay themselves out exorbitantly and have a pimped out priestly private jet and all of these uh, lavish goods. And people from either of these extremes who actually live this way are doing exactly what they think God wants them to do. But my goodness, let's just chill out. We've got to stop thinking so hard about how we are or are not doing every little thing with or without God's specific permission per circumstance. God wants you to take care of your neighbor. So be like Joseph in these stories and take care of your neighbor. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, so in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. 
and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And if the parallels between this chapter and the crucifixion narratives weren't already made clear, we have, on the one hand, one criminal who is condemned, and the other is saved. Why? Because the one who is saved is saved by their humility, and the other is condemned because of the lack thereof. Again, this is primarily echoed by the Lucan account. The reason for the baker's condemnation is simple. The text says that he spoke up because he saw the cupbearer's dream had a favorable interpretation. So, ergo, he was expecting the same outcome for himself. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. But This is the textbook example of why I consider it generally bad advice for people to seek out the New Testament before they get into the Old. I don't know about you, but when I read a book, I like to start at the beginning. <laughs> It's this weird kind of thing that we do with the Bible where we don't even consider that this divinely inspired treasure chest of salvation is ordered and constructed in a meaningful way. And that maybe, just maybe, it is worth to start at the beginning, at Genesis, and just read, 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 read until we get to the end, to Revelation. Case in point, this story tells us that the cupbearer fails to remember Joseph when he gets freed and doesn't follow up on his promise. This seems clearly played upon when the penitent thief in Luke's gospel asks Jesus to remember him in his heavenly kingdom, and Jesus tells him in response that he will be in paradise. It is a powerful reversal of this story. While it is still powerful on its own, it is even more so when you know where it came from. This is just something we talk about all the time, and I will repeat it as long as we do this podcast. But Genesis is not just the beginning of the story. It is the bedrock of the story. It is the rosh. It is the head. It is the arhi, the source, the authority from which all of the other stories are sprung from. Everything I needed to know, I learned from Genesis. Amen. So let us be unlike the cupbearer and instead remember these things. We will see you all next week. Insha'Allah. God bless you all. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.